0: This podcast is brought to you by JewishPodcast.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Shmoozing with Rev Mayor Schiller, Mayor Aene Chachomim. Today we've decided to speak about something that I alluded to a couple of weeks ago, which is the work and ideas of Rahm Shannon Folhersh, who again, as I noted to our listeners, you have written a couple of monographs about um and despite the fact that, again, it's one of the interesting things about you is that despite the fact that you are a Gur Achsidish bench from, from Skiver and, and Hanogas Achsidis, you seem to have uh, more than just a, a passing interest in a parish. You seem to have an affinity towards him and what he was trying to do and, and what he was able to develop. And I, I think you wanted to, to hold forth a little bit about the Hershian values of what they originally were. And if perhaps some of it, or part of it or or perhaps in totality can be used. The Hershey and Derek can be an answer to some of the the problems that beset Orthodox Judaism today.
1: I think Rav Hersch's greatest contribution is that he regarded God as the creator of all of existence, which led him to see uh, knowledge and beauty and human experience as significant and largely positive. It led him to embrace humanity as a whole and to see Jewry as playing an important role in terms of general humanity. While on the other hand, he was a staunch defender of orthodoxy, both in belief and in practice. So this combination of an embrace of the totality of creation and humanity combined with a vigorous assent and demand for orthodoxy, I think is is almost unique to him in recent centuries and therefore might well offer something of what we require today and that we want very much to have a Frumkite, which is demanding and clear and coherent, and yet on the other hand, not denying the importance of creation and uh, all of humankind. And I think he offers that to us. And to some degree, what's happened even amongst Rav Hirsch's own kehila, after it was transported to America is that they looked around and they saw the Charedi world, primarily the yeshiva world. They saw it as very serious about Torah and mitzvahs, and they didn't really find a place where they could locate themselves. They felt that, whether rightly or wrong, that why you had compromised a bit, the orthodox world, and therefore they chose to settle in the environs of perhaps soft yeshivish, some of them perhaps in the environs of a more hardcore yeshivishism, and therefore much of what was unique to the community had to be jettisoned in order to sign up for um, a Gouda-ism. So that's sad, and maybe we can yet extricate Hersheyanism from that, that grasp. G- again,
0: this- I think is reflective of what's clearly become apparent in these conversations of a favorite theme of yours of the difference between the ideas, the way they developed, the way they were theorized, the way they even were practiced in some golden pristine period and the devolvement of those ideas as they become victims to sort of real politic, if you would excuse the expression, of what it means to actually get along and be involved. I have a number of responses to what you're saying already. I'd like to use your own phrase back, you know. I want to disentangle some things here. But I, I, I will tell you that there is a beautiful letter that Hirsch composed as he was on the train. And again, it was probably a, just a the embryonic steam engine, whatever it was, that he was on the train to Bonn. And he was writing a letter— I don't know if you've seen it. It was printed in Hamayan many, many years ago. And uh, they found this letter that he had written to his cousin. It was actually a girl, a cousin of his. He was talking about the significance of his trip, of what this meant for him to study in Mannheim and to come back as, as a person who could change things. So I want to just tell you, he mentions to his cousin that he fell asleep as many people are wont to do with the sounds of the train passing. And he had a dream. He awoke from the dream and he describes it in such perfect, vibrant prose. He says that in this dream, he was in a sort of a barren area and he discovered a man, an old man with a stick that had cobwebs and dust And the man was trying to use the stick to walk through this desert area, but the stick was not allowing him. It was constantly putting him in sort of like a quicksand that he wasn't able to move. And then he turned around and he saw some young people that were sort of hopping with their sticks, that with their sticks that they had, that they had shaved them down and they were using them sort of like, if you remember, I know that you you do the pogo sticks, that they were being actually like hopping with them and ambulating their way across this expanse. And he, Hirsch, in the dream, was confused about what he was seeing. He saw a young generation that had taken these sticks and were sort of like like the Land Rovers. And then you had the old person who was barely moving. And he then saw a person with an incredible visage like with a long beard, clearly a rabbinic figure who turned to him and spoke to him and said, I know you're confused about what you're seeing. Let me explain to you what this vision of what you're seeing is. He said, the old person, that is the Yadus that has developed and it's not able to move because things have amassed on the Torah. The Torah is that stick that that God has given us to allow us that Mishenet, that Eitz Hachayim, that allows us to move through this world and come to the will of God. But it's become encumbered by dust and cobwebs and things that are not essential. And therefore, it has limited us. It has changed us to a point that we don't understand. And there are things that we are doing that are really, in a way, causing us to stumble over our own identity. The other option that you're seeing is what's happening to the youth of today, the ones that are enamored by what the Haskola has allowed entrance into a society. So they've taken the stick and they've shaved it off. They've shaved it and changed it, that now it jives together with all the other sort of humanistic principles and ideas of the Christian religion and allows them to move through the world. None of this is the derech. What you have to do, and then he turn to young Hirsch, is to know how to take that stick from the old and to carefully whittle away from it all the dross material and to actually present a pure Judaism that is free from that old drainage, that things that has been draining it and that has not allowed it to move. And this, of course, is the revolutionary aspect of Hirsch, the same one that when he when he becomes the the Rav in Bavaria. That he wanted to be Mavato Kol Nidre. He felt that it, people had turned Kol Nidre into a Getchka. They didn't understand the rest of the Avoida. And he wanted to basically eliminate it. So you you are correct that the Washington Heights community just sort of was was power of, but that element of Hersheyanism, which was Let's, let's find real yadus. This is stuff that isn't part of yadus. These are minhagim and hanhogais that let's understand how significant they are. And some of them might be holding us back. There might be certain minhagim. There might be certain drachim. There might be certain things that we're doing that are really stopping us from achieving our role. I think that dream was an engine in his mind for his whole life. That's one statement. You're right. Hirsch is, is discovering God. But it's also turning a critical eye to what Yadus had become. You know as well as I do, Rev. Meyer, that when people speak about the history of Chassidus and they speak about it, you know, whether it's Martin Bruber or others, uh, they tend to simplify things by saying that when the Baal Shemtif arrived in the world, it's because the What we call the Litvish Yiddishkeit, the Miznagdish Yiddishkeit, or whatever you want to call it, the, the rabbinic Judaism of the time had had become victim to a lot of personality issues. People were getting rabbinical positions just based on being son-in-laws. There was a lot of dismissiveness of people who didn't know how to learn. There was cruelty involved. There was an ugly aristocracy. You've heard that story about how Chassidus leveled the playing field and brought new life. I think the Hersheyan story by the real Talmidim feel that there's something about what they did that wasn't just a, a teretz, but was actually a restoration of, of Puriadus. Yes. Well,
1: Puriadus, of course, is hard to put a finger on because it's always difficult to extricate oneself from time and place. They were showing them live in a certain time and place, and depends where they live in as far as time and place goes. So it's always hard to get rid of that cultural aspect, nor is it always a, a good thing. But let me take apart a few of the points that you made slowly here. The first one is that I think that to an extent, the American yeshiva world are Hersheyans de facto. In other words, all the things that would have been seen as bad in litta extensive secular studies, speaking, let's say, Lithuanian or Russian engaging in sports. I can think of many, many things which the yeshiva world in America adopted, which today in Eretz Yisrael would still be seen as not so good, which is one of the reasons why I think it's a bit of a distortion to equate yeshiva shacharediism in Eretz with yeshiva shacharediism in America, except maybe in the some nether reaches of liquidism. But this is a key point. So what Hirsch? could give us, and I'll return to your point about cultural additions, but what he could give us is a rationale for that which we adopted post facto, that we could imbue these things which the yeshiva world does anyway with meaning, whether they're secular studies or their ball playing or their English language speaking, their dress, all these things could be imbued with meaning. Would there be more of a a Hersheyism view upon things? Now, as far as what you say about have things been added which are to the detriment of us, so again, I find that um, cultural behavior rooted in things like uh, dress and uh, food and song and the like, I think my overall judgment is that these things do protect the essence. What happens is that they are mistaken sometimes for the essence itself, so that one could consider B'nai Khula of greater significance than Trish Arvis, so that there becomes a, a sort of distortion which cultural impositions can create. So I think that's perhaps something which Horishianism could do. It, it could say what each thing is. But I would not want us to move easily Motze Shabbos from Kugel to Pizza. In other words, I, I think that these things do serve a certain purpose in terms of creating and protecting.
0: I don't I doubt that Mayor Schiller believes that, but I don't think Hirsch did. I think by <laughs> I think by indicating that they are insignificant, he meant that more emphasis and more energy. It wasn't just let's let's put it on the back burner. As I said, I think he was ready to shave it off. He felt that there were aspects that people were holding on to that was stopping Yiddishkeit from showing its beauty and glory. The world that I grew up in, there, Yisrael High School, for example, in Baltimore. That we were basically Hershians, although we we perhaps did not study Hirsch other than looking at it in, in Chumash because we could find that, that terrible translation. Levy right. is Levy, it the Levi? The yeah. Levy translation. I once yeah. heard from Moshe Selveitchik, not the Rav's father, but Moshe Selveitchik Chicago in the name of his uncle, that the Levy translation gives you about 50% of what Hirsch really wrote. And the Hebrew translation that I think was done by Mordechai Breuer gives you about 80%. But you really need to be a a German speaker and a person from that world to really relish the the beauty and and power and significance of his commentary. But we in in Neri Israel, you're right, we went to secular classes, but it was all because we have to. First of Mm -hmm. all, our parents were making us. And secondly, we knew that the schools in the United States would demand it, right? This was something that was necessary. None of us were ever taught that this was a lekatkhila. Sometimes we had a Rebbe that talked about how math is so important for understanding the Gemara and Edervin and Sukkah, and this is incredible. But it was never meant to pursue secular studies as a way to be a better citizen and this is really the Takhlas of what Claudius was meant to do. It was all a bidieved. It was all based on what we have to do. And of course you can't cheat, but everybody did because of course we had Rosheiklo today basically cheating on many, many tests and, and things. This isn't about scandals of skeletons in the closet. I just want to tell you that it was not it was not in any way imbued with any of the positivity of what Hirsch was about. Right. To us, I, I,
1: the... And you would transfer that to YU as well. I, I, I think it's my, my point was whether YU does it or not, but YU has pared down the cultural, uh, additions and has focused simply on halachic practice and perhaps clarity of, uh, belief as well. So in a sense, they've done the pairing down, but your point is that they have not imbued their secular studies uh, with a God-centered focus. Robert Danziger once, uh, once said that the, uh, a Hershian curriculum does not a Hershian make. So that one could have the Hershian curriculum of general knowledge, which, of course, Y.U. has, and Israel also had it, without the God-centered focus of it, and that's certainly true. I, I was focusing on the pairing down of the cultural additions. Those are two separate areas. And what I want to say about the Y.U. pairing down of cultural additions is the following. Many years ago, I once went to a, a shiva. My Brother in law who was a lake with Talmud, a Philly Talmud, was sitting Shiva. I went there and there were some yeshivish people there. And in the middle of rebellious Shrey came and I was put into a world of its own. In other words, when Rabbanan it is and it was a Hasidisha positing of Yiddishkeit because you had names and places and trips and coming and going. And again, the YU world. Is very slim when it comes to that sort of cultural geschmack, which even the yeshivisha world has a certain sense of history, a certain sense of people, a certain sense of what was when by our ideological forebears. So I think that you do have to have a certain sense of of cultural attachment. Let me push back on
0: that just a little bit because, you know, as someone who really, you know, when I entered Nair Yisrael, the tales of the giant Rabbi Ruderman were legion. Everybody knew about his story. And, and again, the, you're right, the Gedele Soil as really, Rabbi Shua Heshelevin really started this with his uh, his Sefer on the Go'in, right? In other words, the, basically the, the Sefer that came out in the mid-19th century that turned the Go'in into a Chassidische Rabbi, Elias Elio, basically began what was pretty much a, a Litvish version of Chassidische wonder stories, by Rebbes. So, you know, you're right. But and I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I mean, just a sense of their history.
1: Right. But a YU is not enamored of the history of YUism or of YU itself or of his own Gedolim, except for Ravism, which that's sort of, you know, their But uh, But except for Ravism, they're not rooted in their past. And the yeshiva
0: world. Uh, I think is to much larger extent. I'm
1: just saying how you important you have to admit that, that
0: the Hirsch clan also developed into almost you know what yes. Breuer did. Yes. And we talked off yes. pod about yes. Mendel yes. Hirsch. He was also in many ways slavishly connected to his father. And you could take a look now that the, the men hug him, the life, the care to every single detail of their pantheon of greats. So so I think there is a Well sense. they picked, they picked up the cultureism. And forfeited the ideology. So that's the other side of the coin in the Hersheyan world. I think there was a, in YU, is such a large institution at this point. It's hard to speak about Torah Mada in the ways that we can talk about Torah Imder acharetz. So much about YU, especially Rav Mayer, in the last 20 years have been people from the Yeshiva Velt who realize they need to make Parnosa, right? They realize they need a, a, a degree and they want. A higher degree, but it isn't about the significance and the importance of the job they hold. It's all about I can't shtecharayst the hunt and be a poishen yad, right? And, and so, so many of them who have gone to YU, it's basically because they recognized they needed to make a living.
1: Yeah, a couple of points on the table that we've, we've kind of mushed together here. I'm cited YU as an example of paring down the cultural element in the name of pure Torahism. Now we're talking about a different question as to whether YU incarnates Torah Madhun Term Derich Heretz. So I think that by the best of YU, which why I originally said the best of it, there is a paring down of culture, which has both pluses and minuses. And on the other hand, in terms of Torah Madhun Term Derich, no, there it's, there it's almost a total sham. In other words, no effort has been exerted. Certainly since Rabbi Lamb um, left and Rabbi Lichtenstein, I don't think there's almost anybody who uh, is a Torah Madaite in the sense of pursuing general knowledge and beauty in order to find God. And uh, maybe, maybe one or two professors, uh, Sean maybe, but again, almost non-existent. So, uh, in that sense, why you and Breuer's are both the same and that they maintain a Rhetorical allegiance to these catchphrases, Torah, Mada, Torah, but it's not really a disciplining of what one should be. Rabbi Lama, Torah writes a a tefillah as to what one might say before studying chemistry. Chemistry was a a very strong love of his, and he writes a tefillah. It's a hereni muhuram to recognize the to achieve and the wow. Rambam through studying the bria, And this is regarded sort of humorously in many Y.U. circles, because Y.U. is, you know, Yeshivishism with Panasa, with Zionism, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really a place for Torah Madites, as broyers is not really a place for term Dark Eritites. And the greatest proof is something we said offline here which is that neither Breuer's or Wayu sought to have magid Shira and Rabbeim and rashi yeshiva who were pledged to the ostensible doctrine of their institution. So when I went to Breuer's in the 1960s, except for up by Danzig and my Rebbe in 10th grade, there was nobody teaching in Breuer's who was a Hershian in any real sense of the term. And YU it's almost non-existent as well. I think in that sense, both have a
0: rhetorical flourish without a reality. At the Poiskim of the Kehillah, we talked about Rav Geli, of course, and Rokhaim Cohen, Zolgesundzine. These these were men who are from the Hasidushevelt and, you know, they're taking the job, but they aren't in any way reflective of, they're respectful of the history and they know about it. But when you speak to them, you know, there isn't a Hersheyan uh, element. I have to tell you that, again, my interactions with Diane Posen, though, he sort of has it. I don't know if you are familiar with Diane Posen.
1: No, we we had a teacher in the high school, Dr. Speer, who wrote that 100 year calendar. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he had taught in Frankfurt, and he was a math teacher and a science teacher in Breuers. He had it to a large degree, Dr. Speer. But no, I agree with you. But I think an important factor if you want to analyze the. Breuer's Kahila flight from Hersheyanism, I think we can't leave out, and again, I'd say this with affection and respect, I don't think we can leave out Rav Schwab here to some extent, because uh, Rav Schwab's experience in Eastern Europe, combined with the Holocaust, combined with the fact that he found real Torah in the yeshiva world, led him always to be a little uh, doubtful. He wrote the Shaila Tzirah Baruch always be a little doubtful about uh, Rabina Hirsch. And in that sense, Rav Breuer and Rav Schwab are not the same person. Uh, R- Rav Breuer did have that total loyalty. And Rav Schwab was, you know, had his doubts, for, for better or for worse. So I think he has an effect on the deal as well.
0: Although, again, we both spoke about the efficacy of his writing and the wonderful Kunturus, Eilu V'Eilu, these and those, where he seems to deal with his own personal struggle. You're saying that even though he comes out on the side of of Der and Hersheanism you think, me thinks you protest too much, so to speak. Yeah, I don't think,
1: I'm, again, I haven't looked at these and those for many years. It was once a very
0: important part of my life when I was in my adolescence. I'm not sure if he, uh, does he score the fight at the end? Does... Uh, he does. He says that although he was struggling with this and he actually makes the case at least that the Hershian Derach was a Lekat it wasn't just a Bediyevid and it's meant to, and it could still be developed. It can still be used. I don't know the history of the community well enough. I will say that, you know, I do find it fascinating that there were attempts to move the Kahila to sort of a satellite area in Paramus that really, unfortunately, I think fizzled, a la Satmer going from Williamsburg to Monroe. They tried that. I'm not sure exactly why it failed. There were a number of Yekish that went out there. I think they ended up selling the building to another Kehillah a number of years ago. It's really interesting that it's still there. Bennett Avenue has just gotten more crowded, and yet it's still there. And unlike other communities that recognized this is a a very difficult sort of armpit of the city to live in, they have stuck fast and firm to this area, even though you, you would think that if they would sort of spread zechais advocates, that perhaps they could get like minded individuals to be there, I think it only really reinforces the fact that what we're dealing with is some sort of artifact. Just like people go to Meisharim to sort of see the the way Yidden lived, I think people can go to Washington Heights and go into Broyer Shoal and hear the nigunim and the different Shabbosim and say, hmm. This is
1: quite quaint, isn't it? First of all, the shul is probably 75% uh, not full, and they've built some side rooms, to the actual floor where the shul was. So I don't think that there's, you know, that sort of firm sticking to Bennett Avenue because of the loyalty to the Hersheyism. And you're right, though, that the menhagim are maintained. But on the other hand, if you go to the high school there or elementary school there, There's going to be very little that would differentiate it from any, uh, let's call it yeshiva, soft place
0: anywhere else. So it it really is, you know, it's sad because if you read, there's so much passion in what Hirsch wrote. Let me talk about Chorif for a minute, which we've talked about in in previous uh, discussion. In Chorif, he sets down what he sees as the way Tanakh should be taught, that Tanakh needed to be taught not only with a sense of the beauty of the world, and the wonder of of the language, but also together with general history, he saw Limura Tanach with a general history of of the world at that time, and that is that was i think it was somewhat revolutionary uh, and it's and it still isn't does anybody teach tanach uh, in that way at all I, I don't know what's going on there in the uh, in uh,
1: Harzio and Sertzah college. maybe they have something like that, certainly not in the uh, the hamischevelts
0: when you read chorev you see that he wanted the, the, the Divrei Nevi'im to be alive and vibrant and not just to, to be Muznach, the way, as you know, they generally are. Well, again, the, the exception I can think to that in America
1: would be Rav Shagafaba who taught Tanakh in to the Talmidim, and taught it with a passion that would bring him to great joy or to tears in the way he taught it. So the passion that Hirsch, wanted to get from Tanakh. You had from Shagafaivo. One footnote to that is that uh, I had a discussion with one of the descendants of Shagafaivo as to whether or not those Shiurim and Nach were given during these Manei Yeshiva and we did our research on it. We discovered that it was actually given during afternoon Seder time. That's something which would be unthinkable in any place in the yeshiva Hasidish worlds today. So Rav had a strong influence of Horshianism, and he actually studied German, because when he was learning, I think by the Shevet Sefer in Prezburg, uh, he wanted to learn Chorev. Chorev didn't exist then, obviously, not in Hebrew, not in English. So he taught himself German in order to study Rav Hirsch in the original. So Rav is a so, but enigmatic figure in terms of being perhaps a Latter-day Hirschian.
0: fascinating, you know, as Sivorsky's biography, Shluch Rachmana, points out, he was an, an incredible, uh, important figure at such a crucial juncture in in, in the life in America to an extent that it's almost mystical, his effect on learning and on the creation of of schooling in the United States. But one thing I think that our listeners should understand that Hirsch's Chorev and his description of what education should be, as I think we've said, perhaps that we haven't emphasized, as you said, it's, it's recognizing God everywhere, and therefore there is no going into Chol. It's all part of, of embracing the world without fear and with an understanding that we have the gifts and the energy and the ability to do that. In, in his
1: parish on the Mishnayos. He says, So Rav Hirsch says, what's the Pshat? Because it doesn't seemingly stim with his worldview. He says, it means you contemplate the tree after having been mofsig from your learning, mafts from your God this you just can do the tree stab. Okay, nine. There's But if you're not Maftsing the if you if you take the Getlachite to the contemplation of the tree, then it's you know
0: helligazar. Exactly this point. In other words, you have to see it all holistically as part of what God wants. And again, this I think is what had accrued. On to the Eitz Chaim. What occurred on the Etzahayim was that dust and cobwebs and negativity towards anything that was secular, and he understood how it was—it was crucial and important, not just for uh, for for respect and and getting involved in the greater community, but for the sake of Tiyur itself. Again, as much as he leveled very sharp criticism on the Rambam's philosophical exposition of Judaism, he and the Rambam walked lockstep, hand in hand, in terms of what they felt a Balabas should look like, which is someone who should be a part of the world. There was no philosophy in the Rambam at this point, but a Hersheyan mentality meant we weren't going to have Yungalite necessarily dependent on Tsarche Yakal.
1: I just want to say that I often say to uh, yeshivish and chesidish uh, true believers, that if your philosophy is true, then God did an awful lot of irrelevant creating, both in terms of the universe and of humanity, all of which you tell me is of no significance. But he spent an awful lot of time in those six days creating that. There seems to be something missing in that staunch. Yeah, I agree position. with you, and
0: I would only just respond to that, that they could always quote the Rambam and the Persha HaMishnah the Hagdom and the Persha Mishnah, where the Rambam basically using Chazal, but really articulating it in a way that was unique. But sometimes we say the whole world is for that one tzaddik. In other words, that one, that city with all its busyness and all its development and all the economy that produced it was there in order for the great philosopher Chocham to be able to spend the week there or the night there. In the Rambam's hierarchy, really, again, this has to do with his sort of uh, elitist philosophical attitude, which was that we have to see that there is a ladder of, of creation and that the philosopher Chochem stands at the part of it, and sometimes the whole infrastructure is just there in order to produce that great man. That was something that I think would be an anathema to Hirsch, but the idea... And to, be, and to everybody else. It's very elitist, very um, Aristotelian, and it is it is. but it's it's very much in line with who the Rambam was. He felt it was a, a principle to sort of embrace. What, what do you see in the world have any idea who the Rambam really was? My, oh, my. Well, again, they do, they they, they have truncated uh, the Rambam to the Mishnah Torah, which is the the famous uh, Zog in the Oil when the Rambam is, is seeing in the Mesifta Dirikiya of Rav Chaim Briskir pouring over Rambam, and Rav Moshe ben Maimon himself strides over and says, Nein. You know, I guess sort of like in a Star Trek universal translator, I guess he would be able to speak to him, I guess, in in Russian HaKadish, not necessarily in Yiddish. But he told him, no, that's not what I meant. I didn't write that. What you have is really a, a corrupt text. And if you read it according to the way I wrote it, your question falls away, to which Rav Chaim responds dismissively, ah, what does a Sefari really know about Rambam? It really just shows you that the Rambam exists beyond his personal stance. The Tshuvas HaRambam, even the Persha HaMishnayas, in many ways, are really uh, considered insignificant based on uh, the Mishnah Torah, which becomes this calcified but vibrant text at the same time. It's calcified in the fact that it's you're not going to come in here with making new Hagos and finding Kisvayad, but on the other hand, it has a vibrancy and a life that is not dependent on Let's talk about the other aspect of Hirsch that gets a, a tremendous amount of historical writing about, which is the Austritt, where Hirsch was confronted in Frankfurt by a, a crisis, which was that the well-meaning German community, let's say, wanted to deal with the community uh, as a whole. And the Gemeinde, which would have been everyone, including the very strong reform element and the ones that were not part of the Hirschian enclave. And Hirsch at that point really authored a, a sort of very novel idea, which was that despite our dna connection despite the fact that it might be our own actual cousins and brothers and uncles and aunts the judaism that they are espousing is so different than what we have a reform judaism that makes so many changes that is willing to sanction chel shabbos that's willing to to have such difference in terms of the way tfilos and other things happen that is not really yadus and therefore they wanted to jettison themselves or expunge themselves from the community and be seen as a separate identity, and that the community, the German community in Frankfurt, and they should be seen as separate. They were not part of a Judaism that in any way could sanction a Chil Shabbos, Chil Yontif, being Mavatel one day of, of Yontif and only having one, throwing away and, and therefore, they wanted to say, we, they are not us. There were Rabbonim that, in many ways, could could match Hirsch, and I think surpass Hirsch in terms of their Talmudic erudition, that fiercely, of course, disagreed with them. Uh, two of them, of course, is, uh, is Rabbi uh, Zeligman Bamberger, of course, uh, the Wurzberger Rav, and the, the Rav in Berlin, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer. Both of these men, who were giants in Torah knowledge, who, who enhanced really the, the the world of the Talmud and the world of Shas and Peskim with their Truvis and the, the Rishonim They came out with the Ritzgeus by Rav and Bamberger and Truvis, They were fiercely opposed to what Hirsch was doing. So, talk about in your mind how the Ostrat has the iterations of it in, in our days.
1: I think we have to again here disentangle institutional recognition from personal affection, a personal understanding, so that it is one thing to have institutional separateness, and on the other hand, to, in terms of individuals, not to understand where they're coming from, so that, especially in the Chassidah Shema Soda, there's a great emphasis on the idea of Tinek Shanishba, and it's said that uh, when the Baal Shem, whether he participated in or he heard of the Cheyrim pronounced on the Frankistan, and he said famously, Hashchina miyalele salehem, so that there is a staunch Hasidic tradition of an all-embracing love.
0: That is a tightrope that is so hard to walk. Yes. When, when, when you see official proclamations that they aren't Jews, that we are something different, and then in your heart... That, that say, they are
1: not Jews? I don't think you would find that. You would find that
0: they are let's not... Let's say it better. Hirsch articulated to the, the the German authorities that their practices basically mean that they are connected to a different religion than what we have. Do you expect a child who's raised in that environment to be able to bifurcate in such a way to say, well, on one hand, the religion they practice is not Yiddishkeit, and ich bin Ayid, and say sind nicht Yidden. That is an incredible, who is able to do that? I'm not saying that there haven't been Chabadskers and Tamiri Baal in the truest yeah. spirit able to do that. Yes, Reb
1: Reb Chernobyl. No, I think it's it's fairly common in the Hasidic world to walk that tightrope.
0: But can that tightrope be walked? Mental gymnastics necessary for it need to be explained. On one hand, what you're doing is the greatest khilashem. and I wouldn't eat in your house, and I wouldn't touch your grape juice at all, right? And basically, you know, I, I think that the chup on your head passes every single tefillah you ever Took because it's zicher they weren't oila lamale right on the other hand the
1: it, it, shabbos and haircut are not quite the same category
0: right right but but basically the hanoga is and on the other hand you're now able to say I love you I care for you I will be out there for you I'm going to radiate avas yisrael to you avas yisrael when I dismiss and consider you at best a poor misguided nebuch uh, living like a guy, What sort of true Ava Yisro is when it's a condescension? kamoyu. Part of true Ava, as we know, is about recognizing the greatness of that other person and giving him that respect. When it's i right? I think
1: you're confusing Satva rhetoric with Hasidic rhetoric here. <laughs> First the story and then what I think is an important, somewhat important insight. Uh, many years ago in Square, Camp Ramah asked to visit Square for Shabbos. And uh, they brought along, must have been, 10, 15 counselors, 60, 70 uh, young campers. And uh, many of them were scheduled to eat in yeshiva. So Erev Shabbos, uh, a friend of mine, said, well, what are we going to do with the wine? We're giving wine by the Suda, and all these kids are not showing me Shabbos. What are we going to do? So I remember I ran over to the uh, the Rakhim Sifkeleba, who was then the manal of the yeshiva. And I said to him, what's with the wine? So he took out the Rambam, Hilchos and Perigimel, in which the Rambam differentiates between the first generation who have separated from Yiddishkeit, and later generations that were after Makarov. So he said that there's no Shiloh, that it's not Yahya that it's a different category in Halacha. And I remember being a sort of impetuous teenager, I said, and what about the counselors? So he looked at me sort of, you fool! <laughs> Why the councils is any different than the campers? What's the difference? And uh, we had the regular one in yeshiva, and, and that's the, again I say in the Chassidish that that harsh rhetoric doesn't exist. But in any event, what I think we have to emphasize here is the following: in a non-ideological era, it could be in terms of individuals and perhaps even institutions. But I'll get to that soon that the idea of them having rejected in an ideological, philosophical sense is really not relevant. I think if you would have gone into my neighborhood in Regal Park in the early 1960s, we were all going to conservative or reform Hebrew schools, and asked us any number of questions, is Torah minna, shamayim is Shabbos We would have no idea what you were asking us. We would have no sense of any kind of Ideological clarification of anything. So when that's what you're dealing with, it could be the approach becomes a little bit different. So that again, and this you have in Eretz Yisrael now. You know, the old time we've discussed this. The old time mapam even merits is fading. So that in Eretz there's this hazy sense of being Jewish, which might be fertile ground for uh of, you know bringing people into Torah and mitzvahs. And here, again, I think Lubavitch is somewhat instructive that if you get a do one mitzvah, one mitzvah here, one mitzvah there, that that itself can have great chashivas because the ideology is so unclear. The there, It's not an ideological age. So how much do these distinctions based upon ideology still figure? And I think that's what you're sort of heading to. You're saying, well, the 90% of khalosar that's not shanatara mitzvahs has not read, you know, Geiger or the historical school
0: in Germany. They're just sort of vague and mushy. The same way, Rabbi Zio Hildesheimer, who I can tell you I love his Chuvus and the work that he did on the Bahag, and of course, even more so, his Talmud, who came from Hungary, who came to respect his Dera so much, Rav C. Hoffman, who is a spiritual hero of mine, along with Zalman Baumberger, I think what they we're worried about, and I think it's still true today. Is that when we do disassociate, and when we do even on an institutional level make those type of statements, we limit. Although you've mentioned on a personal level how it can be different, we limit our chances of altering and inspiring those others. We might work together on some chesed project, perhaps when, or get together on a march, perhaps to Washington. But since we don't speak in the same voice with them, we still see them as the other. And our ability to influence them and change them and to perhaps even draw from them, you're always worried about being affected by Tumas Maga, by even touching them. But clearly, you know, Kildesheimer and Baumberger felt that this destroys the Achdas B'Yisroh, it is something where pronouncements like that, but, however, I still love you as a person, as I said before, have an effect. M- must we not declare heresy heresy? The question is to say the stark statement that we do not practice the same religion. We do not practice the same religion. That statement is so forceful that it, it creates rifts that I think are almost impossible at least they felt were almost impossible to heal. Maybe we live in a day, I'll throw the towel in on this one. Maybe we live in a day where we just mouth, you know, statements without putting too much thought in it whatsoever. And the passion that Baumberger felt, although he respected Hirsch as a thinker and as a person who, who did much to help his community, but perhaps today, just like, as we mentioned before, Hirsch's, Passion has, has sort of dwindled. Perhaps we could say the same thing about Hirsch's antagonists in this case. Everything has really become sound bites. Everything has dwindled into just a, a statement that really doesn't have much weight. There, there is no greater example of this than Satma
1: in many ways. In other words, I once asked the Satma, I pointed out to him that according to the strict interpretation of their belief system, they really shouldn't be going into the hospitals with the the most massive effective biker system in the world, since all the people in those hospitals are Zionists, and all the patients, so ninety nine percent of them, and therefore they're worshiping the worst of the Zara Zatevel and in Oliver Gimel Verus and yet they're Ma, they are extending.
0: They should no be Meriden v'Leimailan,
1: right? Was that? That's correct. It should be Marina v'Leimailan. They should be poisoning them, not bringing them food. They should be poisoning <laughs> them. So. I, Again, I think that you are right that the, the mushiness of the time allows for a certain communal sense. There's nobody in Lakewood or Square anywhere that would not say yes if they were asked to host a non-From person interested in Yiddishkeit, and they would spend time talking and schmoozing and cooking and baking for them. Right. So again, we have to be wary as in many areas between rhetoric and uh, and reality. Although, again, institutionally, again, I, I hear your point that if you say it is
0: heresy, but what else can you say except that heresy is heresy? What would you have us say? You could say that, look, I disagree with my colleague. My My understanding of what God and the Torah is and what God wants from us isn't just a divinely inspired document that needs to be altered for the time. But we are all of the same stripe. We are all B'nai Avramitz Yes, he is my co-religionist. I think that statement means a lot for the unity that Claudius desperately needs. He is my co-religionist. I think when we get caught up Gen- genetically to add that qualifier already puts the dart into the, uh, to the guy's arm.
1: Well, but when you say you disagree... Is disagree a strong enough phrase here? Disagree, so smacks of sort of an egalitarian reductionism.
0: I ask her mayor, what is gained by the firm declaration? The Chareda Shevelt isn't going to be poisoned. The heresy of not believing in entire Mineshammayam is terrible, but are they, do you see reform still as this threat? To no, but what I do see, you're, you're correct.
1: Nobody is leaving a chassidish yeshiva or a lakewood to embrace reform Judaism. I think it would be almost impossible. But what does happen is that since there's a lack of clarity about you say this in the lift, so therefore there is a certain confusion that our community has. And as you said at the very beginning of the discussion, one of the accomplishments of Hersheyanism is to emphasize what the echte, you say this are. And, and therefore, if we leave it hazy, then I think you have to be a little wary of the haziness coming in. Now, again, whether that can be rectified without saying that reform and conservative are institutionally heretics, I don't know if it can. I, I, I we, we have to sort of draw those lines, but I'm quite willing to say that the individuals today, as, as I said before, the individuals today are not part of any, uh, any ideological world. I do want to say, comment on one thing you said before, which it could be they have certain milestones which we don't have. Man, I readily agree with that. Certainly, in terms of a certain universal morality, which is my great bugaboo when it comes to orthodoxy, how much we lack a sense of universal humanism. So again, perhaps the non-Orthodox are a little better in that regard. And I'm willing to say here, even that some of those you alluded to before, the, the far left of secular Judaism might be emanating from that larger sense of universal humanism. So I would not throw them out on a personal level either. But I would note that Bernie Sanders and Norman Fickleston are not believers,
0: but you know, so is the local reform conservative rabbi, not a believer in and, and there definitely is a place, and we hear this from people calling themselves rabbis, especially it's become prominent lately, where we have these quote unquote rabbis who are involved as radical activists in the trans movement you know here. Maybe I'm – it's unfair on my side to say here is where I'm going to draw the line. But I think it's one – and again, perhaps it comes from ignorance on my part, but I don't think so. It's one thing if you have a reform synagogue that basically – okay, the the men and women sit together. They drive to shul together. They read passages uh, and say, what is this beautiful, divinely inspired message teaching me? And we have to go and help our others. And even in the Christmas season, we have to understand the great ideas of charity that both Jesus and Moses shared. Okay, so the rabbi spoke about it. They drove back home. Uh, They turned on the TV. They went swimming. I think that's different than when a reform rabbi actually advocates, and again, here I'm showing my age and my my ignorance and prejudice, and says, we need to march together uh, at the gay pride parade. Judaism is about the caring for the downtrodden. Uh, The story of Pesach is really all about... There you would say heresy? So... Here, let me just finish the point. Here, you've heard that. The same way Judaism is always about the caring for the downtrodden, Yitzhak Mitzrayim is showing that God cares about the oppressed. We need to see how the trans community is, is oppressed, and we need to therefore be their greatest advocates. And if not, we are betraying our heritage. Similarly, we need to be at the forefront of bringing in Syrian Refugees into our community. We need to do the utmost to, to be there. We have to dedicate ourselves more to this than to perhaps anything else. Yeah, I repeat my questions. So, uh, so I think her- there, I think there, where it's it's not just heresy Balper, but you're actually destroying the social fabric of what we call basic moral life, the gift of Jewish morality that we gave to the world. Then I would say. I'm not necessarily going to call that person out and say you're not a Jew, right? But there, I would say I cannot work together with you. I cannot. Okay. Work person, you got to
1: stop with this. You're not a Jew. Who says you're not a Jew? I'm saying that this person has heretical beliefs. We're not saying he's not a Jew, but the Rambam might say that, but <laughs> whatever. So you know, let, let, let's talk about this a bit because this is already the dominant orthodoxy of society. So that in reforming conservative circles, this is now completely the dominant orthodoxy and acceptance of LGBTism. It has also permeated most of modern orthodoxy in the sense that they say we have to be inclusionist and welcoming and understanding. They they they're the one step before there, and eventually they're they're going to collapse because they don't have the fortitude to articulate any positions which question. Big Brother's dominance. I mean, look, even this, this charlatan who was called the Pope issued similar statements recently. So again, I, I think what you're falling prey
0: to is you're just rooted in your point in history. Where the morality of an immoral lifestyle, a lifestyle that that is really three steps beyond when that becomes the lingua franca, what we want, you know, then I would even say it as well. But again. But if you, if
1: you do that, once it's completely accepted, it is pretty much completely accepted. And if you reject it, you are the villain in the plot today. Are you willing to say we should all become villains in society's plot? Maybe we'll lose everybody.
0: The fact that there is a pushback, the fact that, again, we talk about politics of today there is a massive pushback by many, including people that are liberal to the this ideology. And you're seeing it, Ron DeSantis has articulated it often in his statements about why he wants to be president and what he's done. And I think you can see an undercurrent of it almost everywhere, the, the idea that pushing this type of, again, I think the the trans issue in its monstrosity I think, represents a, a red line. Of taking kids.
1: But there's no pushback in society against the normalization of LGB, whatever it is, marriage. You, you can't find any Republican, respectable, Repub, conservative, so-called, that's going to oppose that. So we're just a step before that. But you're
0: okay with that? Can we say I, that's email? I think both of us can say that openly condoning and justifying and developing Halachic basis for gay coupling is something which represents a terrible step. And unlike Bill Clinton, where... Oh, don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. We are now have, it's actually open and prideful. So basically, Rav Mayor, you're asking me that why is it that I can sanction and actually, help you know, uh, understand and be able to tolerate. In fact, the open chilul Shabbos and eating treif, the normalization of the structure of a man and a woman is something that I feel represents an attack on humanity, rather than just Yiddishkeit. I think that is a distinction. And but when, you will lose them just the same. In other words, your fear
1: of saying Reform and conservatism are heresies and therefore you'll just destroy any means of communication, that fear should permeate a discussion of LGBTism as well.
0: Once it can be perceived as I come from a conservative man-woman perspective, then I think they're not going to see me as anti-them as Jews. They will see me just as part of a bigoted conservative uh, right, part evil, of the evil, the evil constituency. Right. Yeah. But 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 it isn't that I am somehow hating them or seeing them not as Jews. Whereas I think, again, the oyster does. I think I've articulated a difference here. Okay, fair enough.
1: Just you said sanction and understand as far as Gil Shabbos goes. I as, understand I live with, but I cannot abide the word sanction.
0: So just wanted to. But sanctioning is the wrong word. I can understand it and recognize how hard it is for them to come to the mitzvah of keeping Shabbos. But I think that to stand together, especially when it comes to certain policies where they have to appear together, bodies together, the idea that I cannot go together with the Reform rabbi, uh, that I will not be on the same uh, platform with them. I think that that is, again, a very uh, difficult stance. To hold on to, I think today,
1: because you don't want to take away his the respect
0: and legitimacy you want to give him to some degree. Is that it? Right. I I believe that he should not be when he's around me feel that I am dismissive of him and his accomplishments and what he's about.
1: How about Jews for Peace advocate? What? How about Jews for Peace advocate? How about Norman Finkelstein? How about would you appear on the podium
0: with them? Ones who are pro Palestinian.
1: That's it, which just as a cliche, I would say they don't think they're pro Palestinian. They would think they're advocates for fairness and justice.
0: But you would dismiss them as barely Jewish? Someone who is against the a cessation of hostilities against the Arabs, is that what you mean? And advocate two
1: states and et cetera, et cetera, yes. To me, that is not beyond the pale. Let me tell you a Rabbi Riskin saying, okay? And this might be a good, a good seeum. Someone wants to ask Robert Riskin what he says about Jews in Yerushalayim who scream Shabbos and throw stones. And what does he say to that? He says, he holds from it. He says, you have to run to the streets of Jerusalem and say, Yedin, Shabbos, come to my house for Shabbos. Please come to me for Shabbos and run around screaming that to the assembled Jews who are outside the theaters of Yerushalayim.
0: Eden and Shabbos, come to me for Shabbos. So. No question about it. I agree with you. And I think that, that that is definitely, as you say, a good way for us to end today. We'll catch you, Mir Tashem, hopefully soon. Take care, Romer. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom.